Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 8. We're going to set the stage for this, and then I'm going to read our text, which is going to be in 19 through 23. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. Last week we looked at the, basically the depravity of man and, and how he is completely helpless outside of the grace of God. We see this and we see this truth uh, reiterated all the way through Scripture. I mean, it's, it's there and, and you cannot just go over it and, and pass by it without speaking to it. We have to talk to it. And so Paul comes through and he heals this man. This man gets up and he, and he goes. And then the people there, the crowds, they begin to cry out that Paul and Barnabas are gods. Zeus and Hermes. They begin to cry out that they are gods. We looked at how Zeus was the main little god because I can't call him the, the, the god god because he's not. But they, we looked at how Zeus was the main little god of all the little gods and how Hermes was the mediator. And he would talk and go between those on earth and those in the heavens. And I, I spoke to you the other day about how Satan always has a counterfeit. Even in Greek mythology, you see where there is a great counterfeit. A great counterfeit, always. And it's so incredibly close to Christianity, it's not even funny. Satan's always going to have that in every, in every era, in every ye- all these years that go by, you're going to see counterfeits, always. He is a counterfeit. He is a liar, and we know that the truth is not in him. In verse 13, it says, The priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So this is absolutely wild. I mean, Paul and, and, uh, Paul and Barnabas are here, and they are trying to they heal this man. They had been preaching and teaching. They see the miracle, and then the priest of Zeus runs in, and he's got cows with garlands around their necks. He's fixing to sacrifice them to Zeus and Hermes, because that's who they think is there. That's who they think. They think that these gods have come down to bless them somehow. Come down to do something for them. So the priest comes in and they're going to offer sacrifice to, the, to, to these gods before the crowds. Paul and Barnabas, they see this and they want no part whatsoever. They said, no, we're men just like you. Don't do this. Don't do it at all. Don't sacrifice to us. They go on to talk about the living God. And they don't even get as much as to Jesus. They get through the first little bit of creation. And where the Lord was good to them. Giving them rain and giving them fruit and giving them all the things, the necessities of life. And that they are without excuse. The Lord comes here and he says, or Paul and Barnabas come here and they say, listen, y'all are without excuse. They didn't even get to the point of Jesus. They were cut short of that. Listen to what it says in 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. 
satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And this is exactly what Romans chapter 1 talks about, that they are without excuse because creation testifies that there is a God. They were also without excuse because they were already worshiping somebody. Zeus, remember? And Hermes and all the little gods. We talked about all this. And even with this, even with Paul and Barnabas trying to get them to stop, they could not restrain the people. And when I mean they couldn't restrain them, this was utter chaos. Utter chaos. Paul and Barnabas are basically shut down in their preaching. And sacrifices begin to go off the rails and about the same moment something else happens. I have a passage of scripture I want you to write down and you don't have to turn there because I, you know, we, I've got a lot to read. So Romans 8, 16 and 17 says this. And if there was anything I had to lead off with, it would be this verse. It's the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then join heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Verse 19, let's pick up there and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. Let's read this 19 through 20. Well, we'll just read 23. It says, But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Let's pray. Lord, as we have read your word, as we have looked at how vast this is, where they are traveling and how far they've gone, Lord, we see a couple of things that really stand out in these, all of these verses one of which is persecution at its finest. And so, Lord, today I pray that we would be able to to look at this text and and truly understand the gravity of what happened when Paul was stoned, The, the decisions that he had to make that followed after. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning in there in verse 19, we're going to see what the, what the Lord's going to show us in our text. Um, 19 through 23, I really see four or five things that's going to stand out, three of which I'm going to go over tonight. And uh, the first one that we're going to talk about, first and foremost, is our text will teach us a truth that has been rehearsed to us from our childhood. What is that? 
What's a truth that has been rehearsed to us from our childhood that you can't even remember really remembering the first time you heard it? It's so second nature to you. And that is this, that you will be persecuted for Christ. Right? Back when I was a kid, I thought to myself, and somebody and I were talking about this the other day. When I was a kid, I thought to myself, I'm never going to see that. Just ain't. It ain't never going to happen to me. It just... You know, what's going on over there? It ain't going to be happening here. You know, it just, yeah, Lord, you know, I hear you. I see that we might suffer, but really, in our lifetime, do we really going to see it? Are we really going to do that? Are we really going to go through that and experience that? Well, the Scripture teaches us in Romans 8, 16 and 17, and beginning in 17, it says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What's it saying? We must be willing to suffer for Christ if we expect to share in his glory. There's a lot of glory hounds out there that don't want to suffer. Plain and simple. There's a lot of people out there that want glory, they want heaven, and they want eternal life, but they have no desire to suffer here in this life whatsoever. They don't want to give anything up. They don't want to deny themselves. They don't want to take up their cross and follow Him. They don't want to be under persecution. As a matter of fact, they do everything they can to stay away from it. And when things get hot, poof, gone. We must be willing to suffer for Christ if we expect to share in His glory. That's true. That's what the Bible says. People want the glory without the suffering. And you can't can't have one without the other. It's like evangelism and, and discipleship. They go hand in hand, never to be separated. Having the glory and being with the Lord, suffering is going to come with that. Do we understand it? Come on, beat this horse until we do. Do we understand that? Miss Martha got it. Debo got it. That's good. Verse 19 says, But Jews came from Antioch, Poseidon, and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds... Suffering for Christ. The Jews were absolutely relentless. They had been on the heels of Paul and Barnabas ever since they landed back at at Paphos and Pamphylia. There in Antioch and Poseidon. They were on their heels, man. I mean, like dogs. I used to run dogs with a friend of mine. And we used to run hogs down down there in Nebo. And you could always tell when them dogs was getting close. Because their bark and everything would change. Everything. I knew that we were on top of those hogs because you could smell them. We were hunting them down. These Jews were relentless in pursuing Paul and Barnabas. They did not want the gospel spread any further. And they were getting close to them. They had went from one town to the next, from the next to the, to the next town... They had wanted to stone him in this town and then they went and fled to the next town and then they they actually do it. 
The Jews were relentless. They wanted them dead. They wanted it stopped. They wanted it shut down. And what happened? They're poisoning the minds of the Gentiles. This is what's taking place. They're literally poisoning the minds of Gentiles. Look at verse 2 in chapter 14. When they're over there in Iconium, look at what it says in verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. This is when they learned of a threat of being stoned. So what do they do? They flee to the next town. Because that's what Jesus tells them. They weren't being cowards. They knew they had to go and preach, and so they go to the next town. They'd already, they were already enduring uh, persecution. Lies were being told on them. They were, the plans were being hatched to try to kill them and murder them. The enemy was hot on their trails, and he was closing in and getting close. The Jews poisoned the minds of the Gentiles in chapter 14 and 2, and then here it happens again at Lystra. Malice and evil speaking. Liars were spreading lies. Haters were spreading hate. This is what they were doing. This is what was taking place. Paul and Barnabas preaching the word. They come into this place and here their very lives are threatened. The Jews, they were spreading lies. Whether about Paul and Barnabas, it doesn't tell us for sure, but whether about Paul and Barnabas or whether about what they were preaching, I think probably both to malign their character, but also to put down their message, I think would be the truth of the story. I don't know that. But to malign the character of a pastor, to put down the truth of the message of a pastor, when you can do that and inflict that much, uh, that much damage to someone's character, you've done the work. A reputation that takes years to build can be destroyed just, with just a few words. The enemy knows this. And so they come to tear them down. They come to tear them apart. Notice what happens next. The multitude of people are fickle. They're very fickle. In verse 18, even with these words, it says, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. In verse 18, the people, the mass, the multitude, was offering up sacrifice to their little gods, who they thought were Paul and Barnabas, Zeus and Hermes. But then in verse 19, after a little bit of lying by the Jews, everything changes. Everything changed. But the Jews came from Antioch. Remember the two Antiochs? The first one, well, this is why we would have needed a map this morning. The first Antioch in Syria and the second Antioch in Poseidon. That was the first place where they, where they landed when they, when they got off the boat from Cyprus. They came from there. Then they came to Iconium. And then from there they came to Lystra. Constantly following, constantly trying to get them. Trying to manipulate the crowd. And this is one of the enemies, this is one of Satan's schemes that he does and he does it quite well. The crowds were fickle. And so we truly see what Christ said and what actually happened to Christ come to pass and it came true. What was that? Christ told them that, that 
if he was persecuted, they would be too, right? That's right. If he would be persecuted, they would be too. If he was lied on, they would be lied on. This is true. But all, Christ also was worshipped by the masses one minute while they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then the same people cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Just a few days later. What happened to Christ is happening to Paul and to Barnabas right now before us in our text. Answering what Jesus said would happen. That those that are wanting to enter into the kingdom of God, those that are preparing themselves now to enter into the kingdom of God, they are going to suffer. That they're going to suffer like Jesus suffered. I'm going to tell you something, that if, if, if you're not suffering for the Lord and for the cause of Christ on some small scale, man, you might want to check your heart. The masses, they're extremely fickle, and, and the enemy knows this, and he uses the hearts. The masses' hearts are not governed by the Lord. They're dead in trespasses and sins. But their hearts are influenced by the world around them. The flesh is influenced and satanic impression is all around them. And so we have this persecution coming from outside. The prince of the power of the air is working and moving, following the gospel around, trying to stomp it out. And he preys upon these people. He preys upon those that are unstable in all their ways. He preys upon those without faith. He preys upon them. He wants to use them. And those that are called by the Lord, those that are serving the Lord, he wants to destroy them altogether. One minute they were literally offering sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And the next thing we see in the text is that the people's hearts were changed. Changed. To murder them. How does it happen so fast? How does the heart of man change so fast? I'll tell you how. Through influence. Through giving in to their own emotions. And all of the different things that are coming at us. The one thing that we have that does not change as Christians is the Lord. And we must stand upon that. People, they just go from, I mean, just one thing to the next so fast. Persecution is inevitable. If we plan on sharing in the glory of Jesus Christ as heirs to the throne, and I do, by the way, I plan on that. And if we do, then understand you will have to suffer for Christ. There's no getting around that. You are going to suffer for Jesus Christ. And it looks, a lot of, it looks different in a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. And I don't know how, what it looks like for you. 
I know what the scripture says, that we're to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And how that's played out in life happens a lot of different ways. But it's inevitable that we will suffer for him if we expect to share in his glory. In other words, you're not going to have any of it unless you are suffering with him. It's hard to hear, isn't it? Verse 19 says this, They stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. If anybody's in medicine, and I've broke my leg, so I know kind of what it feels like to be broken. The brokenness and the bruising, the internal and external bleeding. They supposed him to be dead. In other words, he was so badly beaten that they could not tell that he was breathing or not. Paul, the apostle, stoned down. But it wasn't good enough. They take this little man, and they grab him by the arm, or they grab him by the leg, and they begin to drag him. And they're in the city, but now they're going to take him out of the city because he's trash. Because he's no good. Someone who they were worshiping before and killing cows for, now they are dragging out to put him outside of the city because they supposed him to be dead. This is how badly beaten Paul was. You don't just get up from that after a day. If you know anything about the body, that takes time to heal. You don't get up from that from after a week. You're broken, you're bruised, you're sore, you're swollen. Paul, on the other hand, gets up after they do it. <laughs> and I love this, I love this part. Why does he do it? How does he get up after that? They suppose that he was dead. The Lord was not done with him. Plain and simple. Our God miraculously raises Paul. Some people said that he was dead. I don't believe that he was. I think that he was still alive, but barely. Nevertheless, it was still a miracle because there's no way that he could have got up on his own strength. There's no way that he could have traveled some 60 miles the next day or the next few days. Let alone go back into the very city that he was just drug out of. Listen to what happens. After this stoning. But when the disciples in verse 20 gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. It doesn't go into details about the disciples that had gathered around him, but he had people that were following him, people that had been saved. Maybe they prayed, maybe they didn't. I'm sure they did. Maybe the prayers of the faithful the Lord answered and, and raised him up. It, it, it doesn't tell us that. It just tells us that he raised up. And we know that this was supernatural. He stands up and he goes back into the city where he was just stoned and thrown out of. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. You see that? He entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. They travel about 60 miles southeast to their last spot on their first missionary trip. 
60, well, this way, 60 miles southeast. And they have decisions to make when they get to Derby. A lot of decisions. Because they had just traveled from Syria, Antioch, from there to the coast, from the coast to Cyprus, all the way through Cyprus, all the way through the little gods, all the way up to Antioch and Poseidon. And then they came and they were making a full circle back to Tarsus and back to Syria and Antioch, the way they could have gone. But they get to Derby, or Derby, however you pronounce that, and they, they get there and they have to make some hard decisions. First off, I can't believe that Paul's alive. Like, it is blowing my mind and flipping my lid that he is actually alive right here, let alone traveling. But the Lord wasn't done with him. The Lord had a plan and a purpose for his life, and he was going to fully accomplish that. The Lord sees that, and so he he raises him up. The next day they go to a city called Derby, and it's 60-something miles away. Roughly. Which would have taken several days to travel. Verse 21 says this. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, when they got to Derby, they, they preached the gospel there and they made a bunch of disciples, man. They, they preached and people were being saved. And the decision comes. Should we move on? Keep going east? Press on? East, southeast, should we keep moving that direction, that general direction towards my hometown where I know and I'm familiar? To Tarsus, 150 miles away, should I continue that direction? And then from there, move on around the Mediterranean on land and not get back on a boat? Move on around the Mediterranean down to Syria and Antioch? Should I do that? I know that direction. I'm from this area. Paul and Barnabas, they had a decision to make. People were saved in Derby. Many many disciples were there. And this is the end of the line for them on their first missionary journey. They either keep going and press forward or they turn around and go back. They had an option. Go to Paul's home, around, south, to Syria and Antioch, or they could go back the way they came. Paul knew the consequences of going back the way he came. He had just went through there. Remember that? I mean, do we forget so quickly that he had just been stoned, threatened to have been stoned, lied upon, ran for his life, traveled through islands that were, that were pagan to the utmost, had people trying to sacrifice cows to him? And then Paul says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn around and go right back through the very place I just came from. That's crazy. It had probably been safer going the other way. But no, Paul knew this. Paul knew one thing. And that's doing the Lord's work took precedence over his own personal safety. 
And I praise God that he did because he came to the Gentiles, which is us. Doing the Lord's work took precedence over his own personal safety. So they turn around and they go back the way they came from. Counting the cost, knowing exactly where they came from, knowing exactly the people that hated them, they're going to pass right back through to minister again. But this time it's just a touch different. What was the Lord's work they turned back around for? Why would they do that? They just evangelized through there. Why would they turn back around and, and risk their necks, their lives for Jesus? One word, and it's this. And we're terrible at it. The church nowadays is terrible at it. And that's called discipleship. Discipleship. It's a practice. It's an actual practice where we disciple others. It takes our time, it takes our wits, and what the Lord has given us, it takes our abilities, what the Lord has given us, and invest in someone else's life outside of our own to grow them in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Discipleship. Everybody knows what it is, but hardly anybody wants to do it. It's hard. It is work. Paul and Barnabas, they are traveling and they're preaching, 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 evangelism, evangelism, evangelism. They get to the end of the line, you know what? They say, oh, wait a second, we're done here. We're going to turn around and we're going to go back through because those people need some help. We're not going to leave them by themselves. They need some major help. So they go back through. And they disciple those new converts. Training the new converts in all the towns where people were saved. What were they training them to do? To do a pull-up? No. How to follow Christ. How to suffer for Christ. How to stay engaged in the faith and to continue to press on and to move and to do the Lord's work. Discipleship. Look at what has equal importance in God's Word. And we see equal importance placed on this. And the reason why we see it is because Paul and Barnabas, one direction they go and they evangelize, they come right back through and they disciple coming right back through. As almost as if the Lord is saying, when you do evangelism, you must come back and do discipleship. Or what's the point, Right? So, in our text, we have Paul, we have Barnabas, and we have evangelism, and we have discipleship, and they're linked just like this, together. Paul and Barnabas come back through, and they said, you know what? All of these that we evangelized and were saved, they're Gentiles, and they don't know anything. Squat. We got to come back through, and we got to teach them everything. You ever notice that with children, you've got to teach them everything? Little ones, little ones, even all the way up. You've got to teach them everything, don't you? Some things that you think are common sense, they're just not for kids. And sometimes I'm like, why don't they know this? They should know this. But no, we're instructed to teach them. It's no different in discipleship. New converts should be taught. 
should be discipled, should be invested in. Evangelism and discipleship should never be separated. They should go hand in hand all the time. And we're going to stop here, but I want us to look at 23 and 24 because we're going to see what that discipleship looked like. 22 or, or 22 and 23, I'm sorry. It says this. This is what I'm going to be talking on tonight. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many, listen to me, saying that through many tribulations, not just one moment in time where you're going to expect persecution, but through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had pointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. I want to finish with this. We must be willing to suffer for Christ if we expect to share in His glory. Paul was willing to suffer in evangelism, which... It's kind of, when you, and I say this, I don't want you to take it the wrong way, it's kind of a, a romantic idea of being persecuted for the gospel and preaching the gospel. Going into the jungle, going into the depths of the, of the world where, where nobody's been and sharing the gospel, it's, it's got a, a beautiful thing about it. And to move on and to never come back, but then to turn around and come back intentionally, and disciple those very people, once again, risking your neck, this is what Christ is showing us. Paul was willing and Barnabas was willing to suffer in evangelism, but also willing to suffer in discipleship. He was willing to suffer in evangelism and suffer in discipleship for these new converts. Paul knew he would go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Turn with me to one place. There's a passage in 2 Timothy that I want to read that's about this very instance when he's talking to Timothy who came from this very region. In 2 Timothy, and we're going to see him pick him up here in a little while in our text, not today obviously, but in chapter 16 you're going to see that later on. Um, after they go out on their second trip. But turn with me to 2 Timothy for just a minute. I want to read a passage of Scripture to you. 2 Timothy 2, uh, beginning, in, beginning in 2 Timothy 3, I'm sorry, beginning in verse 10. Speaking about all Scriptures God breathed. I want you to hear this. Paul gives the very the very account of what happened to him while he was here at this place. And he's sharing it with young Timothy. Listen to what he says beginning in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 10. He says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Verse 11 says this, My persecutions... And sufferings 
that happened to me at Antioch. That's Antioch Poseidon. At Iconium, that's just east of Antioch Poseidon. That's where the Jews came from. That poisoned the mines. And at Lystra, that's where he was stoned in our text. Then he says, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You understand that? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, all, A-L-L, will be persecuted. What's Paul saying to Timothy? He's saying this. If you expect to share in the glory of Jesus Christ in heaven, being a joint heir to the, to the throne with Him, then you will suffer here. My question to you is now that we know that and we understand that, have we and are you? Have you ever? Suffered? And are you now suffering? It's a pretty good meter to show us, number one, if we are a child of God, and number two, if we're doing His work. Remember, it was about evangelism and discipleship, right? Evangelism, preaching the Word so people would be saved. And then discipleship is coming back and then working that, working that salvation in the lives of those people there. So persecution, truly, it shows us two things. Are we, are we saved? And if so, then are we doing the Lord's work? Are we suffering for Him? Pretty good indicator and pretty good meter to where you're at in Christ. I want you to think about that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.